our two scripture readings for today. We'll be in Psalm 19. So if you could have one finger turned to Psalm 19 and the other passage I'll give you now is from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So the first passage will be Psalm 19 and the second passage will be 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so if you've turned there in your Bibles, as you can follow along as I read from God's Word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from all hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your, in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And our second passage will be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 3, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 4. This being a letter by Paul to uh, his co-worker and his apprentice, Timothy, when he writes these in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, we now pause and ask you in these quiet moments for you to ready our hearts. As we have heard your word read and now continue to look in and explore what your word would have to say to us today. We ask that by your spirit, you would help us, guide us and teach us. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And that our hearts might be tilled by your work as soil ready to receive the seed that would fall upon it. God, we ask that you give us hearts of good soil. And God, that you would challenge us and correct us and encourage us by your words. And God, my prayer is to echo what David the psalmist said. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our redeemer. We ask you do this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. And amen. Well, we are continuing our series on the five solas of the Reformation. I alluded to this earlier that today is Reformation Sunday. Um, we talked about this last week that October 31st, 1517 is generally regarded kind of as the, uh, the watershed moment for the Protestant Rev, uh, Reformation that began 500 years ago this very week. Those were uh, that on that day, October 31st of 1517 is the day when uh, a Roman Catholic monk and scholar had nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. And it was just kind of a conversation starter and a discussion about this thing that he saw, uh, this taking of indulgences, the receiving of money so that the merits and good works of saints could actually be given to those who were in purgatory to get them out of purgatory earlier. And Martin Luther, as he studied the scriptures, saw nothing of anything of that kind and wanted to have a conversation about these and where they were found in scripture and where, uh, what the church might need to do to reform itself. Well, unbeknownst to Martin Luther, he had those uh, theses taken down, copied by some of his students, printed on the printing press, and it spread throughout Germany and throughout Europe and created quite 
a stir. And that was what we consider the beginning of the Reformation that was taking place. And there were several other things that were happening in this Reformation. And there are five kind of mottos that uh, mark what were the core issues of the Reformation. And they're referred to as the five solas. Sola being the Latin word for only or alone. And so here are the five solas that we're going to be looking at in the next uh, several weeks. The first one is scripture alone or sola scriptura, scripture alone. That scripture alone is our source of authority and not scripture and tradition and the magisterium. This is what we'll be looking at today. Grace alone, rather than grace that enables human effort for meriting eternal life. No, it's the, uh, the sovereign grace of God alone in salvation. And faith alone, rather than faith, faith plus sacramental graces and the doing of other good works. Christ alone, rather than Christ and the Catholic Church and the saints. And, and the glory of God alone, rather than uh, the divine glory plus a measure of our own uh, honor and by our works. Or honor accorded to Mary or honor accorded to the, the saints. So today we're going to be looking at sola scriptura, which is scripture alone. Martin Luther uh, got into a little bit of hot water and in trouble by what he had posted. In addition to all of his other writings. Uh, and he was brought in April of 1521. So think about this, about four years after he nailed those uh, theses onto the door regarding indulgences. A couple of years later, he is brought in April 1521 to stand kind of on trial before the emperor um, and the pope and all of the bishops and cardinals. He's brought on trial and he's asked to recant all of his writings. Luther was actually terrified. A lot of the depictions of uh, Luther and Movies and those kind of things is, you know, maybe he was really bold and courageous. The first day he was terrified. He thought he would actually be having a conversation about these things. They just flat out asked him, do you recant or not? That's how the meeting kind of began. And so uh, after a little bit of back and forth, he asked for 24 hours to think about it. And they reluctantly granted him those 24 hours. And the next day he came back and he said, well, uh, I, I don't rec recant. Um, some of these things, because some of my writings you actually agree with. And um, and I will acknowledge that maybe in some of my other writings, I was a little bit more harsh or a little bit more difficult than I needed to be. And for those things, I apologize. But at the very end, they pressed him, do you recant or not? And he said, since you're asking for such a plain and simple answer, I will give it to you. And he says these words, unless I am convinced by the scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther was fully and truly convinced that the ultimate authority lay not in popes and in councils and creeds, but firmly on the word of God. And he, um, seeking God's help, stood firm on that conviction. 
He was actually dismissed from here. He'd actually had a letter promising that he would be given safe conduct to this place and from this place. Because what he had just done was actually uh, condemned himself as a heretic. And in those days, that could uh, have the death penalty come along with it. But he was granted 21 days safe travel, so he was able to leave from that place. And then after he left, um, through the Imperial Act, he was declared an outlaw, and he was uh, anyone who saw him could kill him, and they could be they could kill him without threat of punishment. He had basically a death threat on his head for the rest of his days. This story, I think, illustrates for us this very first motto of the Reformation: sola scriptura, Scripture alone as our ultimate authority. And so, I want us to look at the. Uh, scripture alone today, and I thought it would be helpful for us to do that by looking through the various attributes of Scripture and then comparing uh, what, what, what the Reformers held to with what the medieval church in that day, the Roman Catholic Church, and even the Catholic Church today in some extent uh, holds to. So let me give you the six attributes I'm going to go through really quickly, and then we'll look at what those attributes are and how they compare with what the reformers believed and what the church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church in that time believed. And here are the six. The inspiration of the scriptures, the inerrancy of the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures, the clarity of the scriptures, the necessity of the scriptures, and the sufficiency of the scriptures. So the first one is the inspiration of the scriptures. This basically means that the words of Scripture are spoken by God. And actually, the word inspiration is kind of the classical term that's used. Uh, in some ways, that's a little, it's kind of had a weak sense today or a weak understanding today. Many people would look at the Bible and they would see this uh, word uh, inspiration of Scripture attached to it. And they would say, well, sure, I think the Bible is inspiring. That's not the sense that is meant historically by this word, the inspiration. A better term is God-breathed. And we saw this in our verse today, didn't we? All scripture, Paul wrote, is breathed out by God. Paul coins a Greek term here called theopneustos. Janet's in nursery today, so I could do this. Okay? So say this with me. Theopneustos. Let's do it again. Theopneustos. He kind of morphs two words together like the word for spirit, wind, or breath, and God, and puts them right today. Theo and pneuma. Pneuma. Theopneustos. And so this is, he's giving this attribute of the scripture. He says all of scripture, all of scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's speech written down. And it's profitable for teaching and reproof. Now, some of you might go, well, wait, what about the human authors? You just said that Paul wrote that letter to Timothy. And we just said that David was the author of that psalm. And there were lots of multiple authors, human authors. Yes, human authors. But it's still, there's kind of two authors to the scripture. There's the divine author and then the human author that God works through the personalities of the, the different scripture writers. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
these words, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the inspiration of scripture, did the reformers believe this? Yes. Did the medieval Catholic church believe this? Yes. They did. They believed that scripture was from God. So let's look at the second attribute then. The inerrancy of the scripture. Scripture, by this we mean scripture in the original manuscripts, uh, does not affirm anything that is false. There is nothing that is untrue. These are God's words breathed out by God. And God is the author of truth, only speaks truth. And so the conclusion then is that God's word written down are true. If scripture is breathed out by God, everything that God says is true, then his word is truth. There's just a handful of the way that this is presented in the scriptures. In this prayer, 2 Samuel chapter 7, And now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true. Or as the psalmist says, the sum of your word is truth. All of it. This is basically saying, as Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And as Jesus said in his prayer the night before he went to the cross, as he's praying for his disciples, he says of his disciples to God, God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Did the reformers believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures? Yes. Did, he, did the medieval Catholic church believe it? Yes. So here's the third one then. What about the necessity of the scriptures? And necessity, by necessity I mean this. That the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. The scriptures are necessary for knowing the gospel. The scriptures are necessary for maintaining spiritual life. The scriptures are necessary for knowing God's will. Now, the scriptures are not necessary for some things. For instance, we can know that God exists outside of the scriptures. I think that was the point that we read in uh, Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Paul says something similar to this in Romans chapter 1, that all of Creation gives testimony to the greatness and the grandness of who God is. But to know, this is where it's referred to as general revelation. But there is also a special revelation. And that is that the scriptures reveal something very specific and special about who God is, what his nature is, and about the gospel. And this is why you also see the second half of Psalm 19. The beginning half talks about creation and God being evident in creation. And then in verse 7, it kind of switches. Notice it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And all of these statements kind of referencing the, the spoken word and written word of God. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So we have the inspiration of the scriptures, the inerrancy of the scriptures, and the necessity of the scriptures. Did the reformers advocate the necessity of the scriptures? Yes. Did the medieval Catholic church? Yes. So that brings us to the fourth one, authority. If it is correct, if the scriptures are breathed out by God first, and that God, everything God says is true, and therefore the scriptures are, uh, do not affirm anything that is false, um, then, and it is three, necessary for knowing the gospel, then to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve and disobey God. So this is the sense in which it has authority. Scripture has this authority. It comes from God. The reformers would say, yes. The medieval Catholic church would say, yes. Well, wait. With, a, with some qualification. And we'll get to that here in a moment with these last two. The clarity of Scripture. This is the idea, I'm quoting from uh, Wayne Grudem here. The idea that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Let me say that again. The idea that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Did the reformers believe in the clarity of scripture? Yes. Did the medieval Catholic church? Well, um, not so much. In 1229, so if you can kind of picture this, uh, almost 200 years before Luther nailed up his uh, 95 theses, at the Council of Talaus, the Roman Catholic church actually banned Bibles in part or in whole, in what's called vernacular languages. Okay, that means everyday languages that people would speak. The Bible in everyday vernacular was banned in 1229. The Bible would be required to be in Latin and Latin only. And this ruling kind of, uh, I think, in my opinion, revealed kind of the desire for the church to kind of have uh, a hierarchy to keep the, the lay person, the average everyday person from really having access to God's word, from having access to the scriptures. Even today, the, uh, the only source uh, sole true source of real interpretation and real correct interpretation of the scriptures comes from what is called the magisterium. Okay, so this is like the Pope and cardinals. And uh, so as a matter of fact, the Catholic church in Vatican II, and actually Vatican II was actually in the 1960s. This isn't very long ago. This is their official from their official statement. Um, the task of authority authoritatively interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, 
So the written is scripture or handed on, which is referred to as the church tradition, the things that the church has added to it, has been entrusted exclusively to the living magisterium of the church whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. I think that this is not a, a whole lot different. If this is 1965, um, this is not different than what the medieval church believed. The medieval church did not want people to read the Bibles for themselves. But the reformers, on the other hand, said, yes, there is clarity to God's word. Yes, people should be able to read God's word. And they should be able to read it even in their own languages. One of the things that really kind of took off in the, uh, the age before the reformers were, was um, in the Renaissance where people were going back to the original sources. They wanted to go back and read the Greek philosophers. And so these scholars in Europe were teaching themselves Greek and teaching themselves other languages. And so when it came to the scriptures, they realized that the scriptures were not originally written in Latin. They were written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a little Aramaic. And these reformers worked diligently day and night to teach themselves Greek and Hebrew so that they could go back and read these. This is what Martin Luther did. And they believed that everyone should be able to do that. Every person should read the scriptures and that they should translate those scriptures into languages that people could read for themselves. Luther translated the Bible uh, into German, which was illegal. A couple of other characters you should probably know. John Wycliffe, some personal favorites over here. I found out last week there's somebody in our congregation who's named after middle name. Is, is named after this. I'll let you figure that out. So, um, Gabe, you can tell people later who it really is, okay? John Wycliffe. Notice the dates there, 1330 to 1384. Um, you know, almost 200 years before Martin Luther. He was English, and um, he wrote a book titled, about 1378, entitled The Truth of Holy Scripture, and by the way, this is 150 years after that Toll House ruling, right? Where forbidding the Bible to be translated into other languages. This is what he, he said. He was a professor at Oxford. And in that book, he argues that the Bible alone is the sole ultimate authority in the church over against councils and popes. See, the, Re the Reformation kind of was starting before 500 years ago. That's why uh, Wycliffe is referred to as the morning star of the Reformation. Is that right? The, the morning star of the Reformation. Like the bright light that shines before the sun comes up in the sky. Wycliffe promoted the idea that all Christians, not simply priests and scholars, should read the Bible for themselves. He produced a complete translation of the Latin Vulgate. So he took the Latin text and he translated it into English entirely by hand. We didn't have printing press yet. That comes a little bit later. And so this was the first ever Bible produced in English. Although it came from Latin. It didn't come from Greek and Hebrew. 
And for his theology and for his publications and for writing these things, Wycliffe was forced out of his post as professor at Oxford. Uh, his teachings were condemned by the church as heretical. Uh, and he spent the, the remaining few years of his life after being uh, kicked out of Oxford and condemned as a heretic. He died of natural causes in 1384. And um, the, the Roman Catholic Church was a little upset that they didn't get to him actually before he died. And so uh, in 1428, like he felt like, you know, we got to really give a heretic what a heretic is due, right? And so they actually, in 1428, dug up his bones. 64 years later, found his bones, dug his bones up, and then burnt the bones until they were ashes and then threw them in. I mean, like, they were like, if we can't kill him, we'll, we'll burn his bones. That's, William T uh, that's John Wycliffe. Here's the second one, William Tyndale. William Tyndale was also an Englishman. Um, he we'll back up a little bit the first public version of the Greek New Testament was produced by um, a famous humanist scholar known as Erasmus published it in 1516 any coincidence that the Greek New Testament was published in 1516 and the Reformation really took off in 1517 that's not a coincidence And Erasmus was a Dutch professor, but he was actually teaching at Cambridge. And a young student of his by the name of William Tyndale, he transferred from Oxford to Cambridge. And he was absolutely fixed on this one singular ambition. To produce the English translation of the Bible, not from the, the Vulgate like Wycliffe's, but from the Greek and the Hebrew. And this was not for scholarly advancement. This was not for himself. This was decidedly pastoral. He wanted people, he wanted Englishmen to be able to hear and read the Bible in their native tongue. And this he did at great personal commitment and great personal sacrifice. He taught himself Greek and Hebrew. I mean, by the time he was like in his late ten teens, he learned Greek and Hebrew. Anybody here complaining about how much schoolwork they have to do, right? Kids, um, learn those things. He said this, I defy the Pope and all of his bishops. He said, if God spared my life ere many years, I would cause a boy that driveth a plow to, more know, to know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. The little boy that's driving the plow in the field will be able to know more scripture than the Pope does. That was his goal. Erasmus, uh, I saw this quote from Erasmus that kind of testifies to that. He says of Tyndale, uh, he quotes Tyndale as saying, I'll say this. He quotes Tyndale as saying, I long for the day when the husbandman shall sing to himself portions of the scripture as he follows the plow, when the weaver shall hum them to the time of his shuttle, and when the traveler shall while away with their stories the weariness of his journey. And he too was an outlaw on the continent of Europe. He was being pursued by the authorities all while he was translating and attempting to find printers for his work. And he likely met Martin Luther in Germany. By the 1530s, he had 15,000 copies of his New Testament were published. They were smuggled into England in sacks of flour, in bales of cotton, 
Can you imagine smuggling, being in a place in England and having, having the Bible in your language have to be smuggled in? He kept going until eventually he was betrayed and arrested and imprisoned. And he was strangled to death and then burned at the stake. Why? Because he wanted the Bible in English. Burned at the stake. His last words were a prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And scholars actually say that his work was, was very excellently done. As a matter of fact, 90% of the original King James Version that was published in 1611, you know, almost 100 years later, 90% of it lines up with what he translated. Friends, the scripture is clear. And the reformers... Contra the medieval church wanted people to be able to read the scripture in their own language so that it could be understood and so that people's lives could be changed by it. So that's number uh, five, the clarity of scripture. And here's the last one, the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency that scripture is sufficient as the sole final authority as the revealed word of God. Again, let me quote Grudem. The idea that scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation. Again, from our passage today, scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scripture is sufficient. If the scripture is able to make a man complete for every good work, the redeemed Christian complete for every good work, then the scripture has to be sufficient. So the reformers held to the sufficiency of scripture. Absolutely. Did the medieval church? Absolutely not. For the medieval church, it was scripture plus tradition. It was scripture plus tradition plus that word, the magisterium, again, the popes, cardinals, and bishops. Scripture and tradition in the Catholic church in that day were actually two forms of the word of God. There was the written one, which was the word of God. Remember, they still agreed that the in the inspiration of scripture. But um, there was also the unwritten word of God, which were the traditions and the decisions of the church that had accumulated over the centuries. And this was all based on the idea of kind of apostolic succession. So Peter was like the first pope and that every pope after him was a successor and that he was the, the key that unlocks the church and, and those kind of things. So here's a couple of quotes from uh, Vatican II again. Let me read the first one here. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together, flowing out of the same divine wellspring coming together in some fashion to form one thing okay so he thinks tradition and scripture are basically coming together in they flow from the same source and they come together as one thing just like a branch of a, rid, a river scripture on one side and then this church tradition on the other and then here a little bit later they say this it the sacred tradition transmit uh, transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that 
enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. Thus, it comes about that, and this is the key part here, the church does not draw her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. That's the flat denial. The church does not draw her certainty about all revealed truth from Holy Scripture alone. Hence, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal feelings of devotion and reverence. Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture make up a single deposit of the Word of God, which is entrusted to the church. This is the church. This is the view of the, the Roman Catholic Church today. This was the view of the medieval Catholic Church 500 years ago. And so we hold to what the reformers held. That scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. That it is inerrant. That it is, has the authority that because it comes from God. It's necessity. It's clarity. And it's sufficiency. The reformers believed that the very nature of the Bible meant that it alone was authoritative and sufficient for Christians. Does that mean that we don't have other creeds? Because this is often, usually, the, the counter-argument given to sola scriptura, that, that you don't have any other creeds, it's no creed but the Bible. No, no. That is not what the Reformers were saying. They did not deny other uh, authorities like creeds or confessions or catechisms. They viewed all of those things as helpful pointers to the scriptures or summaries of the scriptures. But they said that when it came down to it and their ultimate decision, the final arbiter was the scriptures and scripture alone and not church authority. So a couple of questions I want us to ask ourselves today. And here's the first question. What is the source of of authority in your life. What is the final arbiter source of authority in your life? Is it the word of God? Or do you seek an authority in some other source? Let me give what I think is one of the, the greatest threats to this principle, this motto of sola scriptura today, scripture alone today. I don't think that the greatest threat for those of us, I'm talking about those who are kind of in the Protestant stream, the Protestant tradition, who would say our forefathers kind of come from the Reformation. Okay, We, we become the inheritors of this, this thing called sola scriptura in you know, Protestant churches, evangelical churches. Um, and so we don't have the threat of a magisterium and those kind of things. But I think we have a different threat. And here's what I think that, that that threat is to sola scriptura. One of the greatest threats to sola scriptura for many of us today is not a man, magisterium. The greatest threat to sola scriptura for many of us today is to make yourself the authority over the scriptures. Or I uh, uh, put it this way on the slide. The greatest threat to sola scriptura today is to make yourself the authority over the scriptures. Or this way, instead of sola scriptura, it is sola self. 
or the magisterium of me. See what I did there? Little alliterations. Now let me explain what I mean by that. That is that when we, uh, there's a tendency, and it's this kind of culture-wide, it's, I think, the, the, the water we swim in, in this culture. And that is to make my feelings, my experiences, my preferences, and give them equal to or greater authority over my life than the Word of God does. And if, if you're not sure about my contention about how widespread that is, why don't you take a little bit of time and summarize every Disney movie you've ever seen? Follow your heart. Follow your own feelings. Be your own person. You get to determine what, you know, you're getting catechized. You talk about a catechism when we do these questions. You don't realize it. You're getting catechized. You're either getting catechized by God's word or by the culture. You're getting catechized. And that's the catechism. Self. My feelings, my personal experiences, my own autonomy. Even the word, how many of you maybe just in kind of, you don't have to admit it subtly, but when I, when I say the word authority, how many of you just kind of, because we live in an anti kind of authority time. To make my feelings, my experiences, my preferences, to have equal to or greater authority than the word of God in my life. I don't know how many times I have seen arguments coming from, uh, quote, evangelical uh, authors, speakers, writers, bloggers, when they're addressing some kind of issue that the Bible speaks to today, and they want to weigh in on this, and they will say, but the Spirit is teaching me. And that, that's fine, except when you follow along and they say, but I think, and it's always a but, but, like God's Word says this, but the Spirit is leading me to think, right? Have you heard things like this? Well, the Bible might have to say this about sexual immorality, but I think that the Holy Spirit is doing a new thing. These kind of things, right? Uh, that always makes me wince a little bit because as we just saw, who is the author of the Scriptures? The author of the Scriptures is the Holy Spirit. Theopneustos, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures. So the Holy Spirit, therefore, cannot give you a private interpretation that goes against what he wrote. Or I'll say it this way, don't blame the Holy Spirit when you don't like what the Bible says. And I've had conversations with these kind of things too. Well, I know that the Bible says blank, but I personally feel like blank. We become the norm. Our feelings become the standard. This is all kind of very postmodern, right? Now, if you don't know what I mean by postmodern, if you think of it this way, there's an author who writes a text and then there's the reader who reads the text. And for many millennia, it was generally thought that the reader could read the text and understand kind of what the author meant. Some people kind of say, well, so where's the meaning found? Well, the meaning is found in the, the text. Some will, some will try to psychologize it a little bit and try to say, well, let's try to get into the mind of the author. That's, so meaning is kind of found in the author. 
What I mean by postmodernism is postmodernism says we there is no absolute truth. Um, everything is kind of culturally contained. And so we can't ever really get back to what an author intended to write. And we can't really even know for certainty what the author wrote in a text. And therefore, that leads to this idea that the reader gets to determine what the meaning of the text is. Right? And these people are writing books saying we can't understand what the text says. But they wrote it in a text and they wanted you to understand it. But they want to say that it doesn't. That was supposed to be funny. That had killed it in seminary class. You get the idea. Okay. So let me hear. Let me give you a quote from uh, this little book called Conversations with God. And this is not an evangelical book. This is like 20 years old. Um. But it's not uncommon to see these kind of books in evangelical, these kind of sentiments here. Okay, This guy here, Neil Donald Walsh, is having a conversation with God, and he's writing these conversations with God down. And God says this in reference to leaders, ministers, books, and even the Bible. God says to Neil Donald Walsh, those are not authoritative sources. To which Walsh replies, they aren't. And God says, no. And Walsh writes... Then what is? God says, listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. Words are the least reliable purveyor of truth. And yet he wrote it down and published the book. And you could buy it on Amazon, right? Um, so like God says, except for the words I'm giving you now, and you could write and publish and you can make a lot of money, right? So, but that idea, words are the re least reliable purveyor of truth. Friends, this is, this is kind of an extreme example, but this kind of thinking, putting our feelings and our experiences over the top of scripture where we interpret where we interpret the bible based on our feelings instead of interpreting our feelings from the truth of the bible this i think is the threat that we need to be aware of and mindful of if we're going to be true heirs of this reformation of sola scriptura the inspiration the inerrancy the authority, the clarity, the necessity, and the sufficiency of the scriptures. And this threat is an ancient threat. This is why I continued our reading on into 2 Timothy chapter 4. When Paul tells Timothy, after saying that all scripture is God-breathed, then he says to him, preach the word. And then he warns them, verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. See? Their authority is their passions. And they will seek those who will find a word that supports their passions. They become sola self. The magisterium of, of me. So that's our first question. The first question is, what is your source of authority? And what do you need to do to get 
to reorient yourself back to making God's word the source of authority in your life. Here's the second one. Here's the second closing uh, thought today or question. Ask yourself, do you own a Bible in your own language? Show of hands. If you own a Bible in your, I don't nobody's copping out on this. This is a real survey. I want to see. Do your hands up. If you don't have one, I will give you one. Okay. How many of you have more than one? How many of you have one on your phone? How many of you have five or more? Okay. So thinking not very long ago, it was illegal to have that. Do you have the Bible in your own language? Then you have John Wycliffe and William Tyndale to thank. You have God to thank for sending a John Wycliffe and a William Tyndale who would give their lives to be burned at the stake or to have their bones dug up and burned so that you could read the Bible in your language. It's really an embarrassment of riches what we have. The access to the scriptures to read and to study and to hear what God has revealed to us about life and salvation and all that we need for godliness and training in righteousness. It's an embarrassment of riches. So friends, read your Bibles. Study your Bibles. Study the scriptures. I close with a couple of quotes here. As our exhortation. This one is from uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. That's the general revelation. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates belief in them. The authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church, but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, the scriptures are to be received because they are the word of God. And then this closing quote from John Wycliffe. The true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. These are his marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. Test all in the crucible of the Bible. That which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the flag which he nailed to the mask. May it never be lowered. Let's pray. God, your word is truth. 
And we thank you that we have scriptures that have been breathed out. And we thank you that they are authoritative and sufficient for us. God, may you adjust our hearts. Get them in tune with your word. May we trust in its sufficiency over our lives. And God, we ask that you would spur all of us, every one of us, young and old, in this room to read our Bibles, to turn to the living and active Word of God, which can penetrate into our very soul, which is your very words. God, we are grateful for those who gave their lives so that we could stand, we could read your word at home. We could gather together in this place and read in a language that we speak and understand. God, may we never, ever overlook what a tremendous gift that is. And so stir us in our hearts a commitment to read your word. We ask that you do this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, all of us pray. Amen. Let's stand for closing benediction. And if anyone has any uh, questions or comments, I'd love to talk with, with anyone. Reminder, next uh, next week to set your clocks back and then get here at 9 o'clock for the series on uh, the documentary on the life of Martin Luther. Also, I forget that the offering box is, is in the back. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.